0: And so today, most Somalis consume a diet that is mostly made of pasta, um, of rice, um, that also as well from the rations, Um, these sort of pancakes um, that they put a sort of very sweet syrup on, um, and then tea with a lot of sugar as well, and candies and sweets from the market.
1: That was Lauren Carruth assistant professor at the School of International Service at the American University. Worldwide, the rate of type 2 diabetes is estimated to be around 1 in 11 people, about 9%. For the Pima people of Arizona, 38% of the adult population have the condition. But across the border in Mexico, the rate drops down to 7%. The difference between the groups is their life experience. One side displaced, the other side on their traditional lands. I spoke to Lauren about the people, where else displacement is changing patterns of non-communicable disease, and what this might tell us about economic migration's effect on health. Lauren, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me this afternoon. You're absolutely welcome. Uh, That was a fascinating editorial. Um, and I'd just like to sort of delve a little bit deeper uh, into um, one group that you, you start talking about in this. And I think um, it's a story that uh, might really help illustrate um, some of the things you're talking about. So these are the Pima people of North America and the kind of natural experiment um, that went on with them. So for a start, could you sort of tell us a little bit more about who are these people? You know, what's their background? Um, uh, and what happened to them?
0: What we sometimes call the Pima Indians are sort of locally known as the Akamal O'odham people. Um, They're a Native American group that live mostly in central and southern Arizona, as well as just across the border in Mexico. Um, And they're part of the sordid history in the United States and throughout North America of um, uprooting Native American groups um, and moving them forcibly um, to different parts of the Southwest. So the um, the typical story that people in public health try to tell is, in the 20th century, there were all of these infrastructure projects in the United States. Um, one of the most popular was to dam up major rivers and to provide irrigation. Um, to farmers uh, living especially in the desert southwest. So major rivers like the Colorado were dammed, um, as well as further south, the Gila and the Salt Rivers. Um, And the biggest dam that affected the Pima or the Akamel O'odham was built in 1924. um, And it dammed up um, these rivers and really changed fundamentally how these native groups made a living, grew their food Um, and where they actually were located. So it's in the context of this sort of economic and social precarity that you see people um, put onto the Native American reservations. And as they did that, the United States government um, gave the different O'odom groups um, and the Navajo and other Native Americans, they gave them access to rations um, in place of their traditional foods. Um, So they would get um, sort of bags of sugar, um, bags of processed wheat flour, um, lard, uh, cow's milk. um, And this is what they sort of began eating um, and making what are now known as traditional Native American foods like fry bread. Um, This is the history of their dramatic both um, life change um, as well as dietary change.
1: And the people now are, are living with the result of of that huge change. And you say in the article that um, uh, amongst the the people who are still living in um, Arizona, uh, they have the highest rate of diabetes in the world.
0: Absolutely. Um, so the um, the Odom people, the Akamelo Odom in particular, do um, have the highest rates of diabetes that we know of for. Any subpopulation group. Um, and what's interesting, what's provided um, the natural experiment, is that um, across the border in Mexico, um, there were Akamela oodum people living there as well, but they weren't forcibly displaced and they've continued to sort of herd and farm. Um, and so you have this um, sort of group of people that are very similar genetically um, that have had very dramatic. Um, dramatically different histories um, and today exhibit dramatically different lifestyles as well as diets. And that's what we see. The the um, Native Americans that are living across the border in the United States have five times higher diabetes rates than the Mexican O'odoms.
1: And what's the story of, of those people that got you interested in in kind of anthropology and uh, nutrition and things?
0: Absolutely. Um, So when I was actually living in Arizona, um, when I was getting my PhD in anthropology at the University of Arizona, um, and before that I lived in the Four Corners region um, and stayed for a while on the Navajo reservation. Um, So I did have a sense of this history. And when I began my professional career, um, I was working in the field of nutrition as well as humanitarian policy, Um, and I did my dissertation fieldwork, not in Arizona, but in a desert (laughs) fairly far away on the other side of the world in the Horn of Africa. Um, And I began living with Somali people um, who live in Ethiopia, in eastern Ethiopia, along the border of Somalia and Djibouti. Um, And what was remarkable was that there were so many similarities between the um, people in the Horn of Africa, like Somali, and a lot of the people living um, in Arizona. Um, So these are the Somalis are um, a desert people Um, like the um, Akamel and Tohono O'odham. They were traditionally pastoralist. Um, uh, nomadic pastoralists or semi-nomadic pastoralists so they were doing a combination of herding and farming um, to sort of make the most of the desert um, landscape Um, the Somali like um, the O'odham are partitioned Um, they are a divided people they were colonized by the Italians the British, the French, and many say also the the Ethiopian Empire so they were divided um, and cut off from their grazing lands Um, Today, a lot of Somalis in the Horn of Africa are displaced. They've been um, forcibly displaced because of wars and conflicts in the Horn of Africa. Um, As a result of political conflicts, um, as well um, as uh, repeated droughts, a lot of people have lost their livestock and have lost the ability to grow desert hardy plants um, that they're able to live on as well. There's another um, similarity that struck me, which is Somali's diets today um, are very often structured by the rations they receive from global humanitarian organizations. So a lot of the people I've lived with today in the Horn of Africa receive regular bags of wheat grain as well as corn oil um, and pulses or legumes, um, like split peas and lentils. Um, And without sort of a lot of livestock, um, having lost a lot of their livestock or lost their nomadic pastoralist livelihood, they're living year-round now in um, rural villages and in cities. Um, They don't move around like they used to. Um, Sugar, And boxed um, cow's milk is now available on the markets for very little money. And so today, most Somalis consume a diet that is mostly made of pasta, um, of rice, um, that also as well from the rations, Um, these sort of pancakes um, that they put a sort of very sweet syrup on, um, and then tea with a lot of sugar as well, and candies and sweets from the market.
1: And are they having the same result as an increased rates of diabetes uh, amongst that population as well?
0: At this point, it's hard to tell. Um, Quite frankly, there have been very little um, studies done on any um, chronic diseases or non-communicable diseases um, among Somalis who are still residing in the Horn of Africa. Um, However, anecdotally, you know, I've been living there for a little over 10 years on and off doing research And as I've gotten older, um, and my interlocutors, the people I live with and work with, have also gotten older, um, what we've all noticed is that um, their parents are coming down with type 2 diabetes, getting diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Um, A lot of people, when they go to the clinic, are diagnosed with um, hyperglycemia um, and struggle with high blood sugar in general. Um, And... They, they struggle both to get diagnosed as well as to get the medications they need. And so right now we're actually starting to collect data um, with Somalis in the Horn of Africa who both have been diagnosed already with insulin resistance, as well as their adult siblings and spouses that may have had some of the same um, dietary patterns, um, lifestyle patterns, as well as these long histories of um, displacement and occupation. So we're starting to look at it now. Um, We anticipate that there will not be sort of the extraordinarily high rates of diabetes or insulin resistance that we see in Native American populations. But we do think that there is a significant rise in diabetes. It's something that is of concern now to the people who are living there, um, as well as the physicians and nurses who are caring for Somali peoples in the horn. Um, So this is a rising problem, Um, and we just don't know the scope of it, and we don't know sort of how the disease of diabetes looks um, or is experienced by people in the Horn of Africa. It may well be experienced quite differently. There may be um, different clinical presentations. They may struggle with um, the management of the disease um, and access to medications in a way that's different from other populations in the world.
1: It's a fascinating look at, at something that's going on. But what it makes me think about is, you know, obviously you're talking about people who've been forcibly displaced, but there's an enormous amount of migration that goes on around the world anyway, econ- because of economic reasons, um, perhaps instead of uh, of political ones um, or, or cl- conflict ones. But... Um, You know, as that goes on, people move away from places where they might have uh, traditionally grown food and things into an urban environment where their ability to to get hold of... um, you know fruits and vegetables affordably uh, is diminished. You know we, we hear about food deserts in, in, in cities where, where it's only very sort of processed foods. The kind that you know don't sound too dissimilar to the ones you described um, the Somali people in the Horn of Africa eating. Um, and you know equally, these people might not have a huge amount of autonomy over the kind of food that they that they're able to eat or, or get hold of anyway.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think this is a huge challenge for um, clinical medicine. Um, Absolutely. There are so many migrants around the world. And what we've seen um, sort of in the emerging literature, the emerging sort of public health and epidemiology literature, is that um, both sort of uh, refugee groups that have been sort of uh, displaced but resettled into Europe and the United States, Um, tend to have quite high rates of chronic diseases like diabetes um, compared to the general population. Um, There are a lot of studies right now um, that are looking at um, Mexican Americans um, and Central Americans who have immigrated northwards to the United States, for example, and Canada. And um, it's sort of challenging this idea that uh, these migrants um, are, are healthy um, it used to be called the, the immigrant um, paradox or the Latino paradox, um, that immigrants um, that were coming to work in the United States from Mexico and Central America were actually healthier than their American counterparts. But that's um, that research has been really challenged. Um, Mexican-American immigrants have rising and very high rates of diabetes and other chronic diseases, especially as they stay here um, uh, into their older age. Um, And uh, my uh, co-author on the editorial I wrote in BMJ, um, Emily Mendenhall, she's done really interesting work with um, Mexican-American migrants who now live in the Chicago area, and she was finding very high rates of diabetes among that population as well, Um, and the diabetes was associated not just with BMI, although people did, um, diabetes was correlated significantly with high BMIs. But it was also at the same time um, associated with um, experiences of trauma um, and of um, these sort of traumatic migrations from further south all the way up, living lives um, in Chicago that were largely segregated um, from the communities that they had grown up in. Um there was a lot of domestic violence um, that affected women's experiences and um, diagnoses of diabetes as well. So I think there's a lot of research that's um, beginning to emerge that connects these experiences of violence, displacement, and diet to the biological and clinical manifestations that these social factors have, which are seen in changes in anthropometrics, higher BMIs, um, the waist-to-hip ratio, et cetera, and that may also have an effect on insulin resistance. Um, and other immunological and inflammatory um, responses of the body.
1: Thanks. Um, sorry, i was just looking back to my question here. Um, so yeah, so your your editorials are titled Social Etiologies of Type 2 Diabetes um, and you've, you've explained some, some things going on there. So I was just wondering, you know, what do you think is next for uh, perhaps medical anthropologists like yourself um, or epidemiologists or whomever it might be, you know, to, to start really unpicking some of that, that social factor from, from just the, you know, the biochemistry of the, or the macronutrient content of, of people's food?
0: Well, right now, as I was saying before, um, uh, Emily Mendenhall and I are beginning to collect um, biological as well as ethnographic data with diabetic patients um, in the Horn of Africa to try to understand better um, their sort of uh, early clinical presentations, the early symptoms that they had, the challenges they had getting access to diagnostics as well as um, medications and insulin. So we're trying to understand. What diabetes actually means in this place. Um, we're doing uh, dried blood spots, um, a biological data collection with these diabetic patients, as well as their um, adult siblings and spouses that we think have some of the same social um, exposures as the diabetic patients themselves. And um, what we're hoping to learn from that, um, we're going to look at the hemoglobin A1C um, as well as C-reactive protein and other inflammatory and immunological responses in those dried blood spots um, to try to see if Somalis, um, Somali diabetics and people who've had the same social exposure um, also potentially exhibit higher rates of these chronic um, inflammatory responses that may be contributing to the insulin resistance. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can sort of move past this pilot, um, phase of our research and look at this, um, idea more carefully. There was a really interesting paper that was published, um, just, I think a month ago, um, in the Lancet diabetes and endocrinology. Um, the author's name is Rob Sladek. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he wrote this really compelling, um, article called The Many Faces of Diabetes, Addressing Heterogeneity of a Complex Disease. And he found, even in Scandinavia, that people who were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes exhibited um, quite, there, there there seemed to be different clinical presentations and biological manifestations of the disease, even within this large Scandinavian population. So he was suggesting, which I think is uh, really interesting, that there could be these subtypes of type 2 diabetes that we're now sort of glossing as diabetes, um, which may be the consequence of very different life exposures or social etiologies, um, and not just sort of the traditional idea that um, type 2 diabetes develops from as a consequence of obesity and diet. So I think that presents a way forward. That What we sort of gloss as type 2 diabetes today, um, what we measure in terms of insulin resistance and hyperglycemia, may actually be much more complex. Those may be just two biological manifestations among many that different populations exhibit as the result of these more complex social etiologies.
1: You know, so, so there's interesting uh, things going on there about studying it, but what about maybe sort of mitigating some of the effects um, of, of this displacement and that diet change?
0: One of the interesting things that comes out of this global perspective on diabetes that looks at um, the experience of diabetes in Arizona, as well as in the Horn of Africa, is that you can also find potential solutions um, in Arizona. There is um, now, an interesting movement in southern Arizona um, among um, different O'odham people living um, around Tucson um, to revive some of the native foods that they once cultivated. And one example is the tepary bean, um, another are the sort of beans that you can harvest from mesquite trees. Um, these beans are desert hardy. But they also have a very low glycemic index. They're really healthy for diabetics to consume. Um, These were consumed, you know, centuries ago. They were cultivated and consumed centuries ago by um, all of these Native American groups in the Southwest Desert. And um, there's several organizations. One is called the Native Seed Search um, in Tucson that is promoting this as a way to address diabetes, sort of a return to native diets, um, which provides the people living there with a sense of their own food sovereignty, control over their diet, a return to the way their ancestors lived, um, and sort of an economic um, opportunity as well. And I think we can have that kind of creativity, even with Somali populations who are affected by humanitarian crises. You know, what in the traditional Somali diet, like the whole grain sorghum, the livestock milk, um, do they no longer have access to? How can we support that while at the same time also improving Somali's access to a diversity of fresh fruits and vegetables that we know can improve um, diabetes outcomes? So I think um, actually looking at what's happening in Arizona is an interesting way to bring solutions to a really different population um, in the Horn of Africa.
1: You've been listening to Lauren Carruth talk about her editorial, Social Etiologies of Type 2 Diabetes, which is available now on bmj.com. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back soon with an update on hepatitis C treatment and testing for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that CPD. You can also find our fullback catalogue, hundreds of episodes, all available for free at bmj.com podcasts. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.